Well, we dive into the first week of Advent here uh, with Zechariah's prophecy for his son John. You know John. John turns out to be John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, six months older than Jesus. Uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah uh, had not had children, and they have John. And John is special because he's going to be the prophetic messenger of the coming Messiah, Jesus. And so what we heard here twice through Anna's reading of the scripture, and then the it's called the Benedictus, if you take the first words of the scripture there and put it in Latin. And that's what Chris sang, the, the band did for us, uh, was that whole thing. So uh, we begin Advent talking about Zechariah's uh, hope and prophecy for his son and for the nation of Israel. You know, this is where it all begins. So John, um, I mean, what parent doesn't have expectations that their, their child's going to turn out like John? I mean, John was moral and righteous. Yes, I mean, uh, he did exactly what his father prophesied and then some, you know. So very, very awesome person. As a matter of fact, to the very point that where Jesus says, no one who is ever born to woman is, will be as great as John. That's a pretty special thing if Jesus says that about you. Pretty cool thing. John then was more than a parent's hope. John is this forerunner of the, uh, in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make ready for the Messiah, the Savior is going to come. See, John is Advent. He is the anticipation of the coming Messiah. And that's why we start with Zechariah's prophecy about John. John is bound up also then in the freedom of a nation. So we're going to notice here that John is not just about a single parent, you know, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, you know, sitting around saying, hey, I hope my kid turns out good. I mean, the entire destiny of a people is wrapped up in this, in this child's life. And so John is bound up in the freedom of this nation. You see, because for over 700 years, by, this is about 30 A.D. when John and Jesus are around, 700 years before that, the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, had been enslaved and run down and eventually exiled. They'd been murdered. They'd been ground to the ground. 700 years of waiting for rescue. Heck, we get upset every four years, you know. We can't wait at all. Imagine waiting 700 years, right? So the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Greeks, and now the Roman Empire has got their foot on Israel's neck. And so the Jews have been playing, praying for deliverance. And God's Savior is going to come and drive off these marauders and these armies. And Shalom will once again wash over the nation and the land. So it's more than just a, a Zechariah's hope for John, his son. It's an entire nation's hope, a, a tribe's dream, a people's identity is wrapped up in this. Ah, and this relationship with God will be restored. Emmanuel, which means God with us, will come and be among us. All of this is wrapped up in this prophecy of the coming Messiah. Every parent hopes big dreams for their child, right? 
Parents want their children to thrive and flourish and have the good life, just like all the students said on there. It's about having what you want. It's about having fun. It's about being happy. It's about helping others. On and on and on. Every child dreams of doing something special someday, inventing something, making some big speech, fixing something, starting some business, being an athlete, being good at anything, being a chef, being a teacher, receiving a diploma. That awesome feeling that every one of us, that every student craves is that they get done with something and they can smile and say, I did it. That's thriving. That's flourishing. So I believe there are two messages here that we want to glean out of Zechariah's prophecy for his son, John, and it's to children and it's to parents. And the first thing that we want to say to the children of Lakeland is this, everyone. So I'm just going to talk directly to the students because I don't think there's any little kids in here, really. Students, it's not about you. Zechariah says, it's not about you. It's not about you. If you pursue a self-absorbed, self-indulgent, self-focused life, you will achieve nothing more than dust in the wind. The Bible shows us over and over and over that those who are selfless, always end up thinking about others succeed in life. They accomplish thriving. But when people in the Bible are self-focused, they spiral down into a cesspool of selfishness, and they fail in the big picture. We can all think of someone who succeeded in the Bible, like King David, the little shepherd boy who goes on to slay the giant Goliath. Was he doing it saying like, hey, if I slay this giant Goliath, I'm going to be famous? No. What's he think? I'm doing this for my family. I'm doing this for my nation. And because God is with me and there's no giant bigger than my God. Completely selfless. Even as a child. Now compare David to say King Manasseh. Who? Exactly. He's in the Bible. But we don't know anything about him because Manasseh led the entire nation astray. Manasseh worshipped idols, practiced sorcery, forced his son to walk through fire. Nice parenting. You know, um, uh, let's see. Yeah, he just, he, he turned the whole nation against God. Led them all astray. Parents named their kids David all day long. Not so much Manasseh. Right? Might want to not use that one for your kid. Okay, now you're maybe running through characters in your Bible like, well, there's a mixed bag when you get to Moses. I mean, wasn't he kind of self-centered, you know, ran off in the desert, said, I don't want to deal with anybody. I'm just going to take care of myself. Leave me alone, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I murdered this guy in Egypt. and uh. Well, the story of Moses is this long journey of somebody moving from self-centeredness to actually caring about others. He ends up leading the entire, because God prodded him, leading the entire nation of Hebrews, all the people, through the Red Sea, out of slavery, and re-identifies, re-establishes the entire nation of Israel. He had anger issues. Moses had anger issues. As a matter of fact, his anger issues kept him out of the promised land. God said, you know, because of your disobedience, you're going to get to stand on the east bank of the Jordan and look at the promised land over there on the west bank, but you don't get to go in. There's a price. But he did change. He moved from being self-absorbed to thinking about other people and gave his life for the entire thing. So children, obey your parents. 
They have many ideas that are good for you. A few that aren't so good. But they have many ideas that are good for you. Ephesians chapter 6 says, obey, Children, obey your parents. The Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, Honor your father and mother. And let's just get this down to brass tacks. Honor your father and mother. It looks like do the stuff that's on the piece of paper in the kitchen. Clean your room. Pick up after yourself. Desire just a little bit of stuff for Christmas and not everything. Be grateful for what you have. Love your family with whom you're stuck with for the rest of your life. So you might want to get used to that, you know, and treat them nice. Because when you're adults, you just don't want to be all embarrassed about the whole... Anyway. Moreover, students, defend those, defend those who don't have anybody with them that are defenseless. Sit with a kid in the lunchroom that nobody's sitting by. That's in your fourth hour. Go out of your way for somebody else. This is what it means to be of the Bible. This is what it means to be not, not just be compassionate, but to actually be Jesus to somebody. Who does that? Especially in student circles where it's all about who's in my tribe and who's in and out. Be that person. Be that, be that sort of person who goes outside of your own group and does something for those that nobody cares about. And nobody pays attention to. Because God did that for you. Jesus came at Christmas to do that very same thing for you. To be with you. Life's not about you. Life is about others. There was a story years and years ago of this uh, kid named Trevor Farrell who saw a television program one night in Philadelphia of Philadelphia's homeless. And he was young, and we would probably as adults call him naive, but he was just what you see is what you get. And this young boy, Trevor, can't believe, he, he figures out that what they're showing on the television is actually people who don't have a home, and they're homeless, and they live on the street, and that just kind of boggled his mind. So he talked to his parents, uh, Frank and Janet, uh, reluctantly agreed, he talked to his parents into taking him downtown and actually going and seeing the homeless people. So they went downtown, they left their exclusive suburb and drove down by City Hall, and there they spotted, crumpled on the sidewalk, a figure huddled on a sidewalk grate trying to stay warm. And while his parents watched, Trevor got out of the car and approached the man and said, Sir, here, here's a blanket for you. And the man stared up at Trevor at first, and then he softly said, Thank you. God bless you. That night changed the Farrell family's life forever. Night after night, they began to drive downtown, taking uh, stuff downtown, all the clothing, extra clothing they had, dozens of peanut butter sandwiches, every blanket in the house that they had to spare. And soon national television caught up with Trevor, and he was on talk show host. The president got a hold of him. Mother Teresa, this is back in Mother Teresa's day, Mother Teresa talked to him. And they all, uh, uh, and when they asked him, why are you doing this? He just simply said this. He said, it's Jesus inside of me that makes me want to do this. You know, the thing is, for all the notoriety and all the publicity that Trevor got, he never understood why helping the homeless was so newsworthy or unusual. He just thought that was the normal. That's just what 
Christians do. Zechariah's son John shows us what's be, what it means to be among those born of women. No one is greater than John. Life is not about you. It's about other people. So the second message we get out of Zechariah's prophecy over John is to the parents. And parents, you do not own your children. They're not yours. I know you think they're yours, and in a court of law, they're going to say they're yours because you're going to be responsible for whatever they do. I get that. You're the responsible party. You're the legal guardian. They're going to call you parent, but you're not the owner. You know who owns your kid? God. And God has put your kids on loan to you. You know what you are? You're not owner. You're steward. They're on loan to you for a, for a short time. And it is your job, I believe, to turn your kid back into God in, in at least as good a shape as when you got them. And hopefully with a little bit of investment increase on them, I think is what God would be expecting. They're not yours. They don't belong to you. You don't have any right to get angry when they don't belong to you. I know you got angry, so I'm just going to let that one go. They're a gift. Psalm 127 says, children are uh, the gift of, but the gift of children is a gift on, on loan. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. God wants his children back, everybody. Hopefully in better condition and with a little bit of increase. So parents, remember that you're always teaching your children in the name of the Lord. Either the wrong way or the right way about life. There is no neutral in parenting. It's either drive or reverse. You're either going forward or you're going backwards or you're spinning your wheels, right? We all know this. So when Moses led the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt and began to reshape the people of God, he started with parents. This is really intriguing. Like, like politics, political, uh, poli-sci, political science classes could go to school on this. If you want to shape a nation, you start with parents. Interesting, huh? Because that's what happened. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what Moses, God tells Moses to say to the people. He says, now put these words of God upon your heart, parents, and press God's instructions for living upon your children. Teach them the right way to live. Talk about them when you sit down at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. In other words, in everything you do, every facet of your life, you are teaching your children what identity they are, who they really belong to, and you are the steward of that mission. You know what I'm talking about because children do not necessarily listen to what you say that's so awesome. What they're really doing is listening to your emotions. And if you say, I'm tired, go to bed, get out of here. They hear, I'm not worth anything. See, children have one big filter, emotion. And all the other blah, blah, blah that you say just goes in one ear and out the other. How are you raising your children what are you actually saying is right and wrong? Your whole home is nothing but a Petri dish of right and wrong. When I'm saying when they're below eight years old. That's really when they get formed as a person. Your home is this teaching center for right and wrong. Jean-Pierre Arget, 
the great developmental psychologist, had this famous question that he would ask to his subjects when he was doing research. He asked them this question. Children, who's naughtier? A, the boy who's stealing cookies from a cookie jar and accidentally breaks the cookie jar. Or B, the boy who accidentally breaks a glass while helping set the dinner table. Which one's naughtier? Who do you think is naughtier? The boy who broke the cookie jar, you know, while stealing a cookie? Or the boy who accidentally broke the glass? The answer is, think about it. Now, older kids all said the kid who's stealing the cookie and broke the cookie jar. But the younger kids, it was 50-50. There was no difference because in the home, they had been taught to break anything is wrong. Even above stealing. All about the parents immersing their child in the emotions of what's right and wrong. Do as I say. Very interesting, huh? Now, as students of our children, our task then is to invest in the kids. So, we got Advent, right? So all this kind of mixes together now at this point because Advent... Like, okay, let's just go here. So let's just say you're not the most spiritual, religious person in the world. And you're like, i got to, like, do this Advent thing with my kids. And, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, we've made it easy for you. This is just really low-hanging fruit here. So we have this Advent guide that's out here. And if you've never done this Advent thing around here, then you'll want to buy a uh, wreath kit out there. It has a, it's not this size. It's a small one. It goes on your kitchen table. I mean, I know that'd be cool, but, um, and it has the candles and it's got all the equipment and you get some guides to go with it and, um, what you'll want to do. And you already went through half of it for tonight. Like, let's just say you're going to do it tonight, you know, like after dinner, then you've already done half of it. We did it all together. So you kind of know what you're in for, but you might want to gather some friends or if you could just do it by yourself, if you needed to, if you didn't have anybody else around that you felt like being with, uh, then you could do that sort of thing. So there'll be these sort of things that you go through. This is the sort of thing that shapes your household. If you're listening to that Deuteronomy chapter 6, you know, raise up your children, teach them this, put it on the back of their hand, put it on their forehead. This is this immersive type thing. Start this tradition in the home. Keep this thing going. You may get some eye rolls. You may get the slouch in the chair and the whole thing. It doesn't matter when they're 23, they'll be saying, hey, are we doing Advent? You know what I mean? And then they'll do it with their kids. This fits right in with the whole gift giving and the whole other thing. So get this thing done, and this thing will cookbook walk you through the whole deal. Very simple, very easy kind of stuff to do. It takes about 30 minutes, and you're good. Now, what we didn't do in here together, although it might be kind of fun, is do a little game. And if you buy a new wreath kit, there is one of these little um, battery-operated tea lights, uh, and uh, you're going to want this, so if you're, if you're just getting the guides this year, make sure you get a tea light if you don't have it. You might just want to get a good one because the batteries go out because it got left on when you put it away for Christmas storage. But nonetheless, um, so get one of these because you're going to play a game with it. And then you're going to um, have a little brief discussion. And tonight, there's a whole variety of questions, little kid questions to really thick stuff, I think, that people are going, like, I don't know the answer to that. So, you know, you can pick out the right question, which one you want to answer on the thing like that. And uh, so that work. And then afterwards, if you're really on the A game, you got snacks. 
Not just any snacks. In our home, it's cream puffs. You know, I used to do the Atkins diet, but those cream puffs, I could eat the whole plate. I think so. And then you don't know, you know, what other adult things, snacks there might be. So um, anyway, uh, so that's what you have on tap if you do this on Sunday night or Monday night. I think some people even started early and did it last night and so forth. So what you'll want to do in a little bit of preparation is get the song that we all sang together, get that queued up on your phone or on a laptop or whatever, an iPad or something like that, so you can play that song. So you get that first verse going, and then it gets special each week as that thing builds. You know, So that's going to be very cool to get that done. All right, um, let me see what's coming up next. Yes, so we are wrapping things up here. We have a special benediction that we do um, during Advent, but just before that, uh, how do I put this? Um, um, okay, well, let me just say something. I said this first service is not on script, but talking about shaping children, sociologists, anthropologists, um, are all the little kids asleep in here right now because this is kind of important? Um, so, uh, your aunts, your brothers and sisters are the ones who teach your kid about sex. They also teach them to smoke and to drink and to drive fast uh, and do things wrong and sneak out at night. It's the aunts and uncles in every culture, every tribe in Africa, everybody in Asia, no matter what culture it is, the Inuits or whatever, it's the aunts and the uncles that do all the damage. They also do really cool stuff. Because your kids won't listen to you anymore once they turn about 12 or 13. But those aunts and uncles, man, look out for them. So if you gather them around tonight, around that Advent wreath, you know, and the aunts and uncles are there, just keep an eye on them. Because you don't know what they're going to do with the champagne over in the corner (laughs) and your kid. I'm just saying, like, he's only four years old. Give me that. So, you know, uh, just be careful on the whole thing. But um, it's, they're very, very important. So for all your aunts and uncles in the room, I'm watching. I'm keeping a list of who's naughty and who's nice. I'm just saying. So, Actually, I don't know that. But um, so shape your kid well. Because what will happen is, is you may be the very one like, hey, kid, what do you want to do with your life? It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about somebody else. You know? You could be that aunt or that uncle that does that as opposed to teaching them how to smoke. Right? Pick and choose. You got, you got power. This kind of goes for grandparents and so forth, but sociologically it's aunts and uncles. Go in peace. <laughs>